0: Welcome to the London Business School Responsible Business Podcast. My name is Tom Gosling. I'm an executive fellow in the Centre for Corporate Governance at London Business School, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Andy Brown, who is founder and chief executive of Cedar Rock Capital. And I'm particularly looking forward to this conversation because with sustainability and ESG becoming a sort of profession and specialism in its own right, I'm really looking forward to hearing how a real-life investor that actually invests money on clients' behalf thinks about these issues. So, um, Andy, very warm welcome to you today. Thank you, Tom. So perhaps to start off with, Andy, could you just tell us a little bit about Cedar Rock Capital so that we can understand your investment philosophy and, and what you're aiming to achieve for your investors?
1: Sure. We started in 2002, and what we do is based on something I started uh, at another firm back in 1996. So we've been doing this for 25 years and doing it at Cedar Rock Capital for nearly 20 years. We are long only investors in quoted equities. And we specialize in companies that generate high unleveraged returns on their underlying capital employed, which implies that they would make high returns on equity even if they were, didn't use any debt finance and they were financed 100% with equity. We specialize in in high-return businesses that we think are capable of growing while maintaining high returns on the capital that they reinvest to grow. So it's a pretty specialized, it's a very narrowly focused activity, and uh, we characteristically own maybe 20 or sometimes fewer stocks. They characteristically are not capital intensive. They typically have a lot of uh, repeat kind of business, recurring revenues or repeat business rooted in customer loyalty. They're typically not strongly cyclical. They're pretty predictable because we're fairly modest about our own ability to predict the future. So we, we, we you know, are interested in companies that adapt to the future but are not subject to violent change. I guess the characteristics we seek, if we're lucky enough to get it right, then then, um, we typically stick around as shareholders in our portfolio turnover. It's in the single digit percentages in terms of annual portfolio turnover, uh, which means that we let these companies uh, compound for us and for our clients. And that's the objective, is to generate good compounding over time uh, through this approach to long-term investment. And I think...
0: um another point as i understand it is that you now run a closed fund so you're you're not in the business of marketing for for new capital is that correct
1: we stopped recruiting new clients in uh i think back in 2005 and the point was that we we had a properly sizable business and that once we'd achieved that we thought it would be churlish to to devote loads of our time and attention to endlessly recruiting more assets into our business and that we really wanted you know the reason we started the business and and what we're doing this is that we want to focus on investment. So we we look after and and interact intensively with the clients that we have. But we're not forever seeking to add additional clients because that that's that's a distraction that we don't think our existing clients or we should 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 settle ourselves with.
0: I mean, the reason I just wanted to sort of bring that point out was that in many respects, I think you're kind of your motives around sustainability are extremely pure. I mean, I think there's some cynicism sometimes that uh, some funds use to sort of burnish their sustainability credentials in order to gather new assets and attract new clients, whereas actually you're, you're, you're not in that position and you're you're an extremely long term investor. And um, one of the things that sort of interested me is that I, I'm fortunate enough to be on the, the mailing list for your um excellent you know both insightful and amusing annual letter to your investors Uh, and this year you know the theme of sustainability featured quite strongly throughout what you wrote and you actually invited a piece by by an old friend of yours um peter knight Um, could you just explain who peter is and why you particularly asked him to contribute to your letter this year
1: peter is is an old you know a long-standing personal friend of mine and uh, he is the founder, well, the co-founder, and, uh, and, and runs a company called Context, which is uh, a consultancy that advises corporations on what their sustainability strategies might be or how to communicate their strategies. He founded the thing in the late 1990s. So we wrote about sustainability quite a bit in our, in our letter this year. Because clients are just you know, bombarded with sort of information and requests from their own principals and, and constituents mm. and so forth. And they want to know what, what, what we have to say about this. Mm. And I thought it would, be, it would be interesting to have Peter sort of write a potted history of ESG as a contribution to our letter. And there's a little symmetry here because 20 years ago, he asked me to write a piece about socially responsible investing for a publication that he put out for the clients of Context. And I entitled it The Oxymoronic World of the Socially Responsible Investor. And, and this, right. b- back then, social responsibility <laughs> was, I think, the investment aspect of it was sort of disinvesting or declining to invest in things deemed objectionable. Mm. And so in the piece, I kind of noodled over o- over the concept a bit. It might be easy if you could just have a list of what's objectionable. You could just avoid that. But, but I remember just looking into it and say, thinking... Um, Take the sort of the, the center of the investment universe, which would be risk-free government bonds. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you think of UK Gilts, if you actually subscribe to a new issue of Gilts, you're providing money to the UK government, which itself procures nuclear weapons and it and it you know it may build hospitals and schools, but it also sponsors a state lottery. That might be deeply objectionable, so it was sort of like, wow! If you take the sort of risk-free center of the universe, and even that, if you you know were really sticking to your to your principles, and your principles objected to certain activities of the UK government, wow! Well, where are you? And I guess the other kind of thing that gave me an occasion to ponder is that disinvesting or declining to invest in something doesn't deprive that that activity will not stop just because you have decided not to participate. So it was to, to be clear about it that, you know, avoiding things, it doesn't amount to boycotting them or actually altering their business prospects, but you might do it to feel good, which is yeah. great. Everyone should, should do, you know, I mean, I think within reason, people should try to do what makes them feel good, but it, but it, it is not a world changing activity necessarily. And it shouldn't be confused with, with a world changing activity, particularly if it were to distract you from really trying to change the world, if that's what you're trying to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, so, someone explained it quite nicely to me the other day and said that, you know, we shouldn't confuse a sort of disinvestment with a consumer boycott, you know, because right. actually, if, if there's a consumer boycott of 10% of your customers, then then actually, that's probably revenues that you've just lost, and you're not going to replace, whereas actually, that's not the case with 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 equity investors, you can normally find someone who's going to pick up the uh, pick up the investment.
1: And so just, just to finish it, I, I, I had asked Peter to contribute this because he has all this perspective he's been around. He's been doing this for 40-odd years. So he was sort of tracing the history and you know of the environmental movement and Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, back in the 60s and so forth. But I think an important uh, turning point was, uh, and I'll quote what he said. he said, that the ESG Companion's crowning achievement has been to co-opt a phalanx of financiers eager to set standards as as and to sell and trade ESG labeled indices, products and derivatives, with ESG supporting and verification industry led by the big four accountancy firms in its wake. I mean, it was sort of like, I think it's the financial services industry, very broadly defined, has seen this a big opportunity, and that yeah. that has helped propel it onto the to, to top of mind for asset owners. You know, I mean, our kind of clients pension funds or endowments or foundations, you know, people who own assets but don't necessarily do the detailed investment thereof. They hire managers like us to do this. Well, they're being bombarded with this because you can see on all fronts, the financial services industry is just full steam ahead on ESG.
0: Yeah. And actually, I mean, in that context, there is a a bit of growing scepticism, isn't there? And we've seen, you know, Tarek Fancy's recent piece, which is a sort of one end of the extreme claiming it's all just a a placebo that's a money making scam for the industry. But actually, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this issue is that you've had, you know, sustainability and long termism at the heart of what you do since the very outset of your activities. When you think about sustainability, how do you define it and how do you build it into your investing approach?
1: I looked back at sort of the brochure or manifesto we put out when we started our firm nearly 20 years ago, and we used the word sustainability several times in it. But I, I think in today's context, we'd have to say that was with a, a small s, a lowercase s. And it was it, it's because um, what we need in the businesses in the companies that we invest in is we need for them to remain agile and adaptable and able to grow and cope with a changing world and with kind of the shorthand that we use is we want companies that are well invested we have a sort of concept of the well-invested company and by that we mean not just a company that um you know makes the capital investments to keep its physical assets in shape in fact with the the businesses we invest in, that's a fairly comparatively minor activity because they're not terribly capital intensive. But there's a bunch of investment um, that's really necessary for long-term prosperity that, that is not capitalized in the way a capital investment would be. It's actually investments that come out of current earnings. They're operating expenditures. They're oriented to the future. And so research and development or staff training or promulgating new technologies in your company Marketing, advertising, market research, um, all of these things require expenditures that come out of current profitability, but they are they're, they're really important for a company to sustain its ability to grow. And generating internally generated growth is the highest return thing typically that a company can do for us. Acquiring other business is, is oftentimes a, a very distant second or, or it really should be a non-starter when it comes to major transformative acquisitions because the returns on capital can be so low. So uh, so we need a well invested business and um, we need our businesses to, to be well invested because the world is changing all the time and change is a threat to, you know, to any business. But if you're well invested, it's also an opportunity because you can redirect your investments in the direction of change increasingly. And, and you, you want to keep your products and services top of mind, relevant to your consumers and customers. And if you look at your consumers and customers um, and look at, this is sort of hackneyed, but look at millennials and Generation Z consumers. And these people, I think the oldest Generation Z people are 24 by now, and the oldest millennials are into their 30s. You know, these people are more than half the world adult population. I mean, These people are consumers, these people are voters, these people are your colleagues, employees, they're rising into middle management of every organization. They do have a bunch of sustainability concerns, but you know they're, they're concerned about where do your raw materials come from? This is increasingly something that defines you as a business and if you're not anticipating and understanding what the public and what your customers, consumers, your pr- prospective employees are, are gonna be expecting from you or asking of you, then that kind of change is a threat. And if you, to turn that into an opportunity, you have to keep it adapting. So I'd say that um, I think that we think about you know, the new information demands and the new behavioral demands that are being made on businesses or you know that have been evolving for years, but they are comparatively recent, that this is all part of serving your customers well and meeting their expectations and trying to anticipate their expectations. So it has to do with sustainability in every possible use of the work
0: what's really interesting about that answer to me is that you're really grounding this discussion about sustainability in what's going to help support long-term value creation in the business by reference to its adaptability its ability to respond to changing consumer and employee demands whereas actually kind of what we're seeing today increasingly is is almost to start from a list of social problems, whether that's sort of environment or inequality or diversity, and, and the question almost being asked, not how do you need to respond to these to in order to create long-term value. So how should businesses be responding to that? And, and are there any sort of ESG issues that crop up time and again for you in the businesses that you invest in? Oh,
1: well, that's a, that's, that's a great question because I, I, I think the – an important development in the ESG sort of movement was the United Nations Agenda for Sustainable Development, in, in which they came up with in 2015, setting out 17 Sustainable Development Goals, which include 169 targets mm-hmm. of, of various sorts. And there was a lot of expectations out there. And the question is, uh, which ones are are really relevant to business in general and which are relevant to a particular business? I guess first thing to say is every business is different. And that's fine with us because we we, we know our businesses very well because we only, in any moment, uh, own fewer than a couple dozen of them. And so we make use of all of the financial reporting and disclosure and all the information that we can collect on companies. The ESG movement has generated a whole lot more reporting that we can have a look at. But I think that, that for us as long-term investors, that, that what, what we focus on are both ESG measures or non-ESG measures, you know, various financial ratios, various developments in how a, company, how a company's balance sheet is working or its access to finance, et cetera. How does this relate to the company's strategy? And I think that, that when it comes to, you know, sort of ESG matters, I think that, that you, can, you can pretty quickly see a small number of matters, oftentimes of an environmental nature, that are really important to a company's ability to operate and ability to continue to attract consumers and customers and to comply with mushrooming official expectations and regulations and so forth. So what we care about is really what relates to a company's strategy and its pathway to continued prosperity. And I think that life gets a bit a bit simpler there because we focus on what really has the most impact for, for better or for worse on a company's yeah. prospects. Mm.
0: And um, a related issue to this, Andy, is this whole kind of question about companies being expected to kind of take a stand on issues of the day. And I mean, we saw Brian Armstrong from Coinbase get into controversy with employees because he refused to kind of make a statement on Black Lives Matter when many CEOs were doing so. I mean, on the other side, you know, John Gibson at Tripwire actually was forced to step down after voicing support for, for the new Texas abortion law. And the, the sort of intriguing thing here is that you know when you look at kind of polling research by people like Adel it shows that roughly two thirds of people want CEOs to kind of take a stand on issues of the day. But I guess the problem is that they've probably got it in mind that the CEO is going to take their stand rather than <laughs> rather than somebody else's. I mean, how do you feel about the CEOs of your investee companies taking prominent positions on controversial topics, and, and how, how do they need to think about it?
1: I'd say that CEOs, but. It you know they they're not elected officials i think my my general attitude is that really their their comments their public comments really should be as close as possible to their company's strategy i mean that's what why is the company here what is it trying to do they should articulate their strategy well in a way that that that, that makes sense to employees and customers and politicians and and, and everybody uh, i'd say that that there are companies you know, let's say founder managed companies or companies that had very strong, characterful founders who may still be around. I think they have a different, um, I, you know, I would think somewhat differently about some of them. You know, if you think of a J.D. Weatherspoon, their founder was a very vocal uh, Brexit advocate. I think that if I were running a more sort of you know, mainstream, multinational consumer products company. I think I might stay out of uh, of the public yeah. Brexit debate if I were a CEO. But I'd say that Tim Martin, he, he was running a, a UK company and and i think that his his customers you know probably would expect nothing less than have him you know <laughs> generously share his views about that about that topic even though it's a very divisive topic so do yeah. you see what i mean i think that some companies yeah. have sort of a character where people would would sort of expect or not be surprised or not take offense at a company sort of uh, expressing the views of its charismatic leader but i think that for most leaders who are not founders that i i think that the closer they stick to strategy I think is is a good general piece of advice, and but if they choose to veer, you know, into more topical matters that are not directly related to strategy, I think they'd have to do that with 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 a lot of consideration. Uh, if I could regale you with a story that Fortune magazine ran about H.J. Heights, the old ketchup company, mm, back mm, in mm. the seventies, and the company was acquisitive and it was buying various other businesses, and it had bought Orida, which was a Idaho company still still a big brand name uh, that makes frozen potato product, mm-hmm. and it um, it was run by I guess some very observant Christians, and and they when their company was coming into the Heinz family, they asked if they could go out and meet the CEOs of the other Heinz companies in the Heinz family, and they went out to the west coast of the U.S. to meet Starkist, which was the a tuna company. It's a brand of canned tuna uh-huh. in the United States, and the head of Starkist had them into lunch and they sat down to lunch and the visitors from Idaho asked him if he would say the blessing over lunch. And he was taken aback by this a little bit, but regained his composure and said, oh God, thank you for sending these people to visit me and I hope we catch a lot of tuna this year. <laughs> <And so laughs> his, he was he was being asked to do something outside of his comfort zone, but he returned it to the strategy. Very he returned
0: it to the strategy of the company successfully. <laughs> Just to move on um, the discussion a little bit, I mean, is where... You know, one of the big ESG issues that all companies are expected to sort of be doing something towards at the moment is is climate. And we're recording this podcast as COP twenty six is is coming into view, and so we are seeing companies kind of rush out with net zero targets in, in an apparent sort of arms race about how quickly they're going to achieve these. And um, is is this something you welcome in your investing companies? Is there anything that we should be worried about when we look under the bonnet of these um, these commitments?
1: I think the welcome aspect is particularly when you look at, at scope one and scope two greenhouse gas emissions, um, which is really basically the, the emissions of the power that companies purchase from the outside mm. the, and, and, and the energy they purchase from the outside. And then the emissions from their own internal activities in producing or producing their goods and services and transporting them mm. to market. Seeking efficiency and productivity, and you know, trying to minimize the use of expensive inputs like energy, is virtuous no matter what. So, uh, so that's that's you know, to be welcome from every point of view. I think the, the worrisome aspect of it, in my view, is companies that um, want to set really ambitious targets, but are not explaining really the gap between what they can do themselves and what needs to be invented between now and 2030 or 2040 or 2050 to enable you to really be, you know, a proper zero carbon organization. Because there really is a lot out there that hasn't happened yet. Uh, And you can just read Bill Gates's book on, you know, I mean, if, if you thought that I mean, R&D is really something important that has to fill a lot of gaps in all of our future, that there still is going to be carbon emitted in the world and there's going to have to be found a way to offset or to to remove that carbon from the atmosphere. So a worry here is that there is, you know, a whole species of carbon offsets and ways that you can... Safeguard a forest or plant a forest or to try to offset, you know, carbon emissions that that you can't avoid making in, in the course of your business. And uh, I think that whole activity is not well understood. It's not well monitored. It's not well documented. And it is it is full of, of opportunities for intentional or you know, there are a lot of unintended consequences, I think uh, to be found in a strategy that just really assumes that carbon offsets are here and they're here to stay and they really they're never going to disappoint us. So if you were trying to guarantee the continued existence of some trees in California, they could be burning down right now and then okay, well, what does that do to your, your you know your offset commitment? So I do worry about things that, that, that seem to satisfy the urge to make a statistical target. But I, I do worry about, it over the long term, how, how durable are these things? How credible are they? And, and I, w- I would rather have a company be more vocal about the uncertainties about how to get to where you would like to get, rather than just taking for granted that some of these offsets are, are actually fine because they may not prove to be fine over time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have to say, the more I read about carbon offset markets, the more I think that they're potentially just a complete kind of fiction when it comes to sustainably reducing carbon. And and I guess that kind of brings me on to a question about, you know, the role of investors in this whole kind of race to net zero. How much can we realistically expect of investors in terms of kind of monitoring companies' plans in this area? Um, and, you know, and holding them accountable versus kind of other political or other mechanisms?
1: Oh, let's see. In monitoring plans, I mean, I think that, you know, you can see that the investors and and financial services regulators, I mean, there's a huge push for disclosure by companies and that the quantity of disclosure on all these fronts has, has been multiplying. So I'd say that investors have certainly, you know, succeeded in vastly increasing the disclosure in the world. How to interpret the disclosure, and I guess what you're saying, you know, how, how, how to judge what makes sense and what doesn't, I think is, is less clear because, um, you know, it's, it's just less clear. If you kind of rephrase the question on, because it's like on monitoring and making sure this stuff happens, I think it's like uh, monitoring is monitoring, but uh, is this going to change the world? You know, investors have a role in urging companies to improve their disclosures, and companies are obliging. And there's loads of disclosure going on, changing the world. And is that enough? Are publicly quoted companies mm. enough to change mm. the world? Mm. And mm. and um, I think the answer is no. I guess it's called the tra- the tragedy of the commons. You know, that the atmosphere belongs to everybody, and it therefore belongs to nobody, in particular. And it really does take governments to direct, preferably in the most efficient way and the least complicated way possible, uh, how people are going to treat the atmosphere. This is not within the gift of companies, or they're not going to be able to solve it even with the best efforts. It requires governments. It also requires changes in behavior of consumers. Now you've got you know the customers and consumers of a company who are also voters. And unless the voters find government measures that they can support and believe in to change the world and, you know, perhaps, you know, cont- contribute with their own behavior or voluntarily or abide by an increasing cost of their carbon productive activities. Unless that happens, you know, the world is not going to change, I think, um, to to the degree that people want it to change.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That I mean, that seems pretty, pretty clear, doesn't it? I mean, I, I'm not sure I'd go as far as, as Tarek Fancy went and, and said that actually all of these efforts are entirely counterproductive, But I but I would agree with you that they're clearly, of themselves, not enough. And I think this kind of brings me on to one of the areas where I mean, you know, you talked about this kind of whole industry that's growing up around measurement, around reporting, around assurance. And, you know, we've seen PwC announce hiring 100,000 people to look at this area. So they clearly see a business opportunity there. One of the tools that investors kind of rely on to make some of these judgments is the use of ESG rating agencies. And you said in your letter that you don't use rating agencies. And I'm just interested in, in why not.
1: I mean, one reason that we don't use them is that um, they look at all sorts of aspects of, you know, a company's activities and operations and distill this into a measure or, you know, a a numerical measure of ESG virtue or falling short of ideals and and ranking companies. There's a lot of subjectivity that goes into an index, uh, as I have found out, because I'm Part of a group that gets consulted on a tobacco transformation index that's supposed to look at sustainability in the tobacco world. So I've I see how the sausages are made. It's 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 it's, <laughs> it's um, you know what you decide to measure, how you decide to measure, and then what weightings you give those different measures as you build up to an index number gives rise to all sorts of, um, you know, possible outcomes. And there's loads of, you know, academic research that that shows that um, different ESG rating agencies, you know, the same company, you know, comes out very differently from different rating agencies. And and that actually additional corporate disclosures of, of ESG information, they serve to widen rather than to narrow the discrepancy between their ratings amongst rating agencies, which is you know kind of the opposite of what you see with credit rating agencies, is that um, you know the more disclosure companies have, the credit ratings tend to be you know fairly close one to another. We can see this sort of tower of subjectivity in in ESG ratings, and you know is this useful to us? Well, it's not. I, I think that people who really are looking for something useful in terms of ratings like that are you know sort of asset owners. Uh, you know, or investors who are not organized to engage in the companies in which they invest. They're not organized to know and understand them in, in any kind of detail. It's very time-consuming, company-level work. But that's what we do for a living. And so I think that we're able to dis- determine which ESG matters are really relevant you know, and impo- crucial to a company's strategy. We can focus upon those. We can focus less upon things that are that are less directly relevant and that we're just sort of in, the, in in the background of how the world works. But if you're an asset owner, if you're a pension fund with you know all sorts of different managers and all sorts of different investments you you're not organized to do that, and you want someone to do it for you. I think in our letter we said um, this ESG rating industry is in its infancy or in its rowdy adolescence. It's just not something. That we would use anyway, but I think that this is very vexing to people who really need things like this they 're not getting it yeah. you know, if you want to know about uh, the credit quality of the credit ratings of all of your fixed income portfolio managers, you can get this information if you 're an asset owner and try to figure out where risks are moving around. but I think this ESG you know either you have to really understand intimately and decide that you really you really endorse the methodology of one of these agencies but The extent to which I've seen ESG reports on companies that I know well, I've found that they oftentimes, you know, get the wrong end of the stick or attribute a lot more importance to sometimes trivial matters than I would. Similarly, we don't use proxy voting agencies either because we study our companies. We interact with whoever the relevant board committees or chairman or whatever for the various items that come up for proxy votes. We make our investment decisions and we also make our governance decisions. To us, it's indivisible. So we wouldn't delegate that activity to outsiders. And, you know, so I think of the ESG ratings as sort of an outside activity that we just are not going to delegate outside our firm.
0: Yeah, I, I do like your analogy. I mean, having had a rowdy teenager who's now grown up into a very engaging and sophisticated adult, I, I, I'm going to choose to take the optimistic interpretation of that. And maybe maybe these kind of ratings will become more more useful in future. And um, as we get into the final stages of this conversation, I would like to then bring it back to some specific examples in your portfolio to just look at how all of these things come together. One of these is Unilever, which is a company you've invested in for, for a long time. And they are generally considered a leader in sustainability, which they've put at the center of their business, uh, including linking it to their, their compensation arrangements. As an investor, how do you feel about the fact that they are investing, you know, quite a lot of time and resource in this area? And, um, you know, could there come a point where you'd think, oh, it's too much?
1: Okay, well, f- first thing I should say is um, I'm not commenting on the investment merits or otherwise of Unilever at this moment in time or of any other company. I'm not here providing investment advice or investment opinion. But uh, just our, our experience as investors uh, with Unilever is I'd say that, yes, they do proclaim their ambition to be a leader in as a sustainable business. They do have, if you want to think about ESG matters that are very directly connected with the company's strategy. They are major users of packaging materials they are major users of commodities like palm oil you know they 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 have something to say about animal testing and so do their consumers when it comes to you know cosmetics and so forth so i mean there are a number of these matters are very close to the bone at unilever and i think that it is very relevant to their strategy and their continued relevance to consumers customers employees prospective employees uh you know that that it is this is their business i don't think that this is um uh, a flight of fancy, just because you know it, it happens to make them feel good. It's not like sponsoring an opera house, if you see what I yeah. mean. That may reflect the, <laughs> you know, the, the the whimsy of a senior executive. This I think is very close to their strategy. But the other thing that I'd say is that they are completely committed to proving that their business model drives superior financial performance, mm, mm. and they're there to be judged on both measures. So I think that they're not um, sort of saying. Look at all the good stuff that we are doing and aspire to do, and we really don't really want to talk about anything else. They also want to be accountable uh, for their financial performance because they, you know, because that's what their shareholders expect, and uh, they they're not ducking that. I'd say that a lot of what they're doing is just very close to their strategy. If if you want more sustainable packaging materials, for example, or that have a higher recycled content, or if you want to have paper bottles, you know, that somehow, you know, can 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 get plastics out of the world of transporting liquids, that yes, as you're trying to kind of prime the pump of your supply industry to supply this stuff, it may cost more than the conventional materials in the early phases as the supply base scales up. But again, you're trying to make advantage out of this for yourself. And it's something you can brag about to your consumers. It's something, you know, it's something that you can, you obviously would want to, you know, if you're, if you're, Going into a slightly more expensive route of packaging that is more virtuous, then you'd certainly would want to package the products that resonate most with consumers who would care the most about that in the first instance with these. So I mean Unilever has a, a brand of personal, vegan personal care products called Love, Beauty, and Planet. And so of course their plastics are recycled and their bottles look a little more cloudy than a a pristine virgin plastic bottle, and they explain that, and they make a virtue out of that, and you would expect them to. So, I mean, commercial advantage is also something that you can pursue even as you're pursuing all these other things. If Unilever were allocating billions of euros of, of, of corporate resources to real fundamental out there basic research in sequestering carbon from the atmosphere yeah. well if a long shot like that were successful that'd be wonderful for the world but its chances of success might be very, very low it might it's probably not the best use of Unilever's corporate resources not that we don't need a lot of resources put into new technologies but it's probably you know it's 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 more for governments and the Gates Foundation than, than Unilever per se and I don't sense that Unilever is sort of interpreting its remit so broadly as to to basically diversify beyond its business in its ESG ambitions. It's it's I think it's keeping it pretty close to them and their brands and their consumers, which is what shareholders need.
0: And so that's really interesting. And so they're really understanding those connections that that, that you talked about earlier, really, between how these issues impact strategy, how they impact adaptability, how they impact your ability to respond to consumers and and I guess employees as well in 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 their case. So Andy how, how would you contrast sort of the situation you've just described at, at Unilever with what happened with um, Danone, where obviously we saw Emmanuel Faber asked it at the at the start of the year amid some controversy about whether that was because he was focusing too much on ESG
1: again i 'm not commenting on the merit, you know investment merits of, of any company and and I you know wasn't involved in in Danone um, in this recent Danone exercise, but actually the the activist shareholders who led to a kind of a renovation of the Danone board, the removal of the chief executive chairman, et cetera, really their objection w- w- was had nothing to do with the, particularly the, the, the ESG activities of Danone, or not the E and S activities of Danone. It was more the G, it was the governance of Danone. The company has a very poor track record of capital allocation, and it made two very large strategic acquisitions, one in 2007 and one more recently. Um, that really torpedoed the company's return on capital. And um, I think that this, over time, kind of weighed upon the financial performance of Danone, and uh, that combined with some other, maybe some operational complaints that the shareholders had. That, that I think, is what spelled the fate of of the management there. It was the governance of the, the CEO was also the chairman, uh, the former chairman and CEO was also still on the board. There was another. There were other former executives still on the board. I think that there was this notion of, from the governance point of view, they were kind of grading their own homework and that they had a regrettable record of capital allocation and that maybe it took some new perspectives on the board to revisit that. And so they now have a new chairman, a non-executive chairman, and they have a new chief executive, et cetera. But actually, I don't think that that is a one for the annals of ESG, you know, of, of the virtues or otherwise of a company uh, embracing ESG, it actually had other things going on.
0: Some good old-fashioned issues around governance and capital allocation. Yeah, okay. those
1: still matter a lot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the second example then is the tobacco industry, which is obviously a controversial industry where you have some um, some investments and and I guess we've already talked about exclusion not necessarily being a terribly productive way to help an industry to transform, but. We are in the middle of a, a sort of what's been in the UK, quite a, quite a controversial case of Philip Morris acquiring Vectura. And at the time of recording, it looks like they're getting the level of shareholder support needed to make that transaction um, happen. It's obviously been criticised as, as kind of ESG washing. But how do you view this? Should we be taking seriously the efforts of problematic companies to transform themselves? Or, or is it all just a, a, a smokescreen, if, if you'll excuse the oh. panel?
1: The Vectura example is comparatively very small in relation to the big thing that's going on in with some of the leading tobacco companies in the world, some of them, which is they are really disrupting their industry from, from the inside by developing and marketing with increasing commercial success, so-called reduced harm products, which enable consumers to consume nicotine without inhaling combust, you know, the smoke from burning cigarettes. And, um, this is not widely known in the world, but um, the real toxicity of cigarettes lies in the toxic compounds from burning tobacco. And that nicotine is neither good nor bad for you, but it's, it's something that it's a, it's a kind of a mild recreational drug that, like caffeine, helps people get through the day. It is not a carcinogen. So developing reduced harm ways for consumers to, to get the nicotine that they want and often crave is a contribution to public health if they can switch from getting their nicotine from combustible cigarette smoke to getting their nicotine through smoke-free alternatives. This is, uh, I'd say, Philip Morris of the big tobacco companies are the most advanced in doing this. Their revenues from smoke-free reduced-harm products are approaching 30% of their corporate revenues. They've documented tremendous success uh, starting in Japan but extending elsewhere in converting millions of smokers from, from dependency on cigarettes to switching entirely, quitting smoking, and using reduced harm products. And BAT is on the same pathway. Uh, and, and really, the, the cat is out of the bag. I mean, capitalism is at, is at work. The leading tobacco companies are competing on moving consumers to reduced harm products, which not only helps them recycle their own cigarette customers into reduced harm products, but also, hopefully, win over the customers of competing manufacturers' combustible cigarettes and turning them into their own reduced harm product customers. This is a, a battle for commercial advantage and it's a big opportunity. And it is something that is tough on the big tobacco companies that have not invested in the, the, the formidable amounts in R and D, product development, endless experimentation, trial and error that it takes to commercialize e-vapor products, heat not burn products, which is Philip Morris's major activity, and then and then things like nicotine pouches um and uh, you know sort of that, that don't even involve tobacco but enable Consumers to to through putting something under their upper lip, they can get some flavor and they can get some nicotine. So so that's happening. It's transforming the leaders of the industry, are transforming them, them you know themselves and and seeking competitive advantage over competitors who were less well invested, if you will. BAT's U.S. subsidiary Reynolds came out with I think the Premier was the first smokeless tobacco product in the U.S. That was back in 1988. It was a terrible, it bombed, it tasted terrible, and it was sort of, it was a big failure. But they've been refining that technology ever since and, and working on other technologies, many of which it's commercialized, and you can see, you know, their products on display and on sale all over the place. So that's the big thing that's happening. Now, by the way, when I, when I refer to the leading companies, I'm not referring to the world leader in tobacco, which is China National Tobacco, which is owned by the Chinese government, which is a, the biggest cigarette producer in the world, which doesn't seem to be terribly interested in, in disrupting cigarettes. And uh, and since China is a closed market, it, it, it can pretty much shield itself from, from this thus far. In developing these products, in, in trying to measure, in making the clinical and non-clinical measurements of the efficacy of these products and you know are are these really reducing harm are they reducing risk to the consumer these companies have built up sort of pharmaceutical quality r&d department and and testing abilities and so i think in the case of vectura philip morris is full of knowledge and understanding of inhalation of how the lungs work on how the lungs absorb nicotine but on how you can get other things into your bloodstream through the lungs and and uh, that can include pain relief, you know, products. It can include therapeutic products as well as sort of lifestyle things like nicotine. And so they do have a huge investment and ongoing investment in, you know, the clinical side of it, in the regulatory side of it, in, in the basic science side of it. So I, I think that, you know, going for an aerosol uh, inhaler business is actually adjacent to the work that is at the forefront of of Philip Morris's transformation of itself from a cigarette company to, in the first instance, a nicotine company to a company that that, that may do things beyond nicotine. So I, I'd say that I, if you talk about ESG washing or, or whatever the term was, I mean, that would imply that you put a picture of daisies on your website and hope that everyone ignores that they're, that you're really a coal miner. Well, this is like, they're upfront about, you know, we're a cigarette company that's trying to convert our smokers and everybody else's smokers as quickly as possible. We're also a technology company because the 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 whole effort to do that has been a phenomenally expensive investment in science, an ongoing commitment. And so there are, you know, businesses and activities that are adjacent to the expertise that Philip Morris has built up. And one of them would be Vectura. So I think greenwashing is not as if Philip Morris is saying, well, look at this nice thing that's that that helps people deal with asthma today and ignore all the bad stuff that happens to some of our consumers. I think they're just they're just sort of saying, well, this is us and we're changing. And I think they're actually forcing, it's sort of the opposite of ESG washing. They're not trying to distract anybody from anything. I think they're kind of forcing the issue that there are a lot of public health people in the EU, in the European Commission, in the World Health Organization, who would refuse to have a conversation with a scientist from a tobacco company. But actually, there's a lot of science that resides in tobacco companies, particularly those that are trying to commercialize reduced harm products. So there are debates in the public health community, and I think this may sort of force some of them further on. You'll see that there are public health people who think that this uh, this is terrible. So I think it's almost like the opposite of ESG washing. It's actually, hey, let's really look at the good and bad and the reality of what's going on here rather than trying to distract the world
0: with something. Yeah, it's interesting. And that connects back to what you were saying earlier about you know, climate change, and let's just be honest about where we are and where the gaps are and, and, and what we're going to do about it. And um, it's a really fascinating perspective. Just to finish off, Andy, a final question I'd like to ask you is, just where do you see all this going? How do you see the future for ESG and sustainable investing? And, and what do we need to be looking out for?
1: I think the next big thing is this UN climate conference in Glasgow in November, we will see how close are politicians to playing a more primary role in in trying to regulate emissions. Uh, How close are they to doing that? And and, and they, they, of course, will all profess their loyalty to the idea. Or how much are they really trying to kind of pass the buck to other parties like the corporate sector? and sort of maintain plausible deniability if if the voters, you know, say, hey, wait a minute, you're trying to drive up my, my petrol prices. You know, the politicians could deny that they're doing that. We'll see how that kind of sets the tone as far as, you know, is this going to continue to be a very rhetorical battle of narratives that are not fully rooted in practical steps that could change the world? You know, so I'm afraid that, that that's what we have to look forward to is I don't think we're going to get clarity on anything, but, but I think that that's in our future is really how, how much will this be a rhetorical and kind of symbolic effort that will involve a hell of a lot of reporting and measurement and, um, and consulting and fee gathering and, you know, all sorts of activities by the financial world, by the accountancy profession, et cetera. But, you know, how, how do, will this actually connect to a widespread change in consumer and industrial behavior? Uh, the type of which probably has to have some help from a government intervention into the world of carbon.
0: So Andy, uh, this has just been such an incredibly informative and enjoyable discussion. I want to really thank you for your time. And for listeners, you know, please do click on the subscribe button so that you can get other episodes in this series. And thank you very much for listening. Andy, thank you.
1: Okay, good to see you, Tom.